And I help life-sentenced men transition from institutionalized prison life back into society. Every one of our men has already served 25 to 45 years in prison. I serve on the board of the Corrections Transition Program at Everglades Correctional Institution in Miami, Florida. I teach these men life skills and how to speak, listen, and think. So when they get paroled, they become assets of their communities rather than liabilities of the state. <clears throat> Welcome to Men Going Home. I'm Chris Wolf, and we've got another great show for you today because we are the only show that brings you access to a segment of society very few people know anything about. Men who have spent 30, 35, and even 40 years in prison. We'll talk to them about their crimes, their life in prison, and what their transition back into the free world was like after all those years. Now, before we welcome our special guest today, please welcome my good friend and co-host, Andy Korch. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having us. Let everyone know, if you want to listen to this program, you could always get the podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and anywhere you get podcasts. Just search Men Going Home. But Chris, thanks for having me. It should be a really interesting show today. Uh, we got a great guest. I'm, yes. I'm looking forward into delving into uh, you know, his background and what got him into prison and what it's been like uh, being out of prison the last uh, few years since he's right. uh, come it, back into society. It'll be fascinating on a number of levels that we'll get into. But before we talk with today's special guest, let's talk about last week's guest, John Eddings. Fascinating on many levels as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean it was it. John was a scintillating story. I mean, here was a guy that escaped from confinement not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And eleven attempts, right? And four successful attempts. Two twice out of county lockup and twice out of Florida State Prison. Florida State Prison twice. One time on the lam, as they say for over a year and probably could have right. had he not committed another crime and gotten caught probably would have, you know, been a whitey bulger or something living on the streets of LA or something. And he got married in California while he was on the lam. But what was interesting is that today I don't, I, I, first of all, prisons are much more locked down today than they were 40 years ago. Yeah. And secondly, with social media and all the, the, the 24 seven cable news networks, I just can't imagine a guy being able to do that as easily as he did. Yeah, he he was uh, an escape artist and a Houdini, if you will. And uh, that was really interesting. But my real big takeaway from all of that show was sort of how he got into crime at a very, very young age. And it seemed like he got into it as a form of acceptance. Correct. Because he wanted to be accepted by his friends. He mentioned, you know, he had, he, as a young teenager, he moved with his family to the... Uh, Cocoa Beach area and, um, you know, wanted to get sort of accepted with the younger or older kids in his neighborhood and started stealing and that sort of elevated to more crimes where he was, you know, uh, uh, cult uh, cultivating armed robbery on a pretty regular basis for a period of about seven and a half years. He also talked about peer pressure and peer pressure was one of the reasons that he he started stealing cigarettes and alcohol for acceptance with the older kids. Yeah. And peer pressure has been a common denominator with 
many of the men in our program at Everglades Correctional Institution, and even something that today's guest will talk about. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting too, in so much that you know there seems to be, like you said, some common denominators mm -hmm. that hopefully people will be listening to this show or watching this show on any of the social media platforms, and maybe some people that are kind of getting into crime now that can see how these these situations end up putting you in a bad place, and that's prison. And in the, in the, the original video that we made for the National Marijuana Initiative, we talked about the common denominators. And with almost every case, it's a combination of uh, uh, hanging around the wrong group of people growing up, using alcohol and drugs, mm -hmm. peer pressure, and just flat out making bad choices and bad decisions. And that's what we'll hear today from our guest. So let's introduce today's yeah, guest great. to get this show on the road. Our today's guest, Jose Nere, spent almost 29 years in prison after being convicted of first-degree murder at the age of 16. He received a life sentence plus two additional 15-year sentences. He has survived over 28 years in some of the country's most violent prisons. He was paroled in 2018, and he is here today to tell his story. Please welcome... Jose, your story is fascinating. So let's start out with your early years. Yes. You were born in New Orleans to a single mother by all accounts. Mm -hmm. However, you were raised in Florida in, in Carroll City and Cutler Ridge. Talk about that. Well, um, we are growing up in a single with my mother and my, my brother. And I, you know, it came a time when we were living in new orleans from you know her telling me the story is just hard living it couldn't get you know any jobs you know couldn't provide for us so she decided to move to miami and upon moving down here um we, we settled down in in in, 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 in carroll city area and, and that's where i grew up i ended up going to Myrtle grove elementary and and then from there you know, around the sixth grade. Uh, that was a pretty rough neighborhood to be yeah. living in, both Carroll City mm -hmm. and and uh, Cutler Ridge, relatively low income, some mm -hmm. high crime areas. What was that like for you growing up in those areas? You know, growing up in Carroll City at that time, late 70s into the early 80s, I was one of, of approximately five Hispanics that I could remember in my neighborhood. I remember when we initially moved into the neighborhood uh, the following day, uh, I went outside to try to find some kids, you know, just to play with. And I got jumped on, uh, got beat up by by four or five of the neighborhood guys, you know, uh, um, brothers, black guys. And, you know, they used to call, they had a little nickname for me. They used to call me Zebra, or Pancho. And, um, you know, that was my initiation uh, my welcome to Carroll City. Uh, so and why did they call you Zebra? <laughs> because I was a mix between a white guy and a black guy. So I, I was mm. like in the middle. So uh, they, they they branded me Zebra uh, uh, just because I was a mix. Right. You know, and you, you had one brother who you say is, is night and day different from you? Yeah, he's a diametrically opposite from me. Uh, my brother was a homebody. Uh, uh, he never wanted to go out. He was kind of afraid of the neighborhood. While I, on the other hand, gravitated to the street life. Mm -hmm. um, I gravitated out to the community and I wanted to engage and socialize. Well, you said, you told me the other day that you started, because I asked you, when did you turn down the wrong path? 
Mm. And you said it was around the age of 13, 14, you were in junior high. Yeah. What led you down the wrong path? Um, the road towards the wrong path initially arose from a, a need to create more wealth. Um, mind you, we're part, you know, we're in a impoverished community and um, my mother wasn't making that much money. And I had, you know, from my youth, I, I think I remember sharing in our conversation that I started working around age eight. I, my first job was with the Miami News selling mm -hmm. subscriptions. And after that, I started working for the Miami Herald uh, uh, through a lady called Miss Patty down in Carroll City. And uh, I, I will help her fold papers and deliver to homes. Um, and then afterwards, leaving there, when I moved down south to Cutler Ridge, I started working for a, a lawn service company, Clean Cut Lawn Service, and um, while going to school. So on the weekends, I would work there, and in summertime, I worked full time. So all that was done. But you met, me. you know, when I ask you what led you down the wrong path, I believe you met a couple of uh, guys uh, named John and Andre. Yes. Whose parents were drug dealers. Yes. So how did that kind of change your life? Well, in the same vein of trying to gain money, um, as I met these two guys, John and Andre, of Colombian descent, um, he, they introduced me to a life that of fast money. So how one, so? Uh, well, I, I remember one day being brought into the house and taken into a room where they opened a closet and there was big bales of marijuana, mm -hmm. like big blocks, and they cut it open. You can hear the air just rush in it's you know because it was airtight sealed right, and right and we pinched some weed and you know it was the first time one of the first times i smoked weed i wasn't really a drug addict or anything but i saw how fast money was being made and so they were the ones that kind of introduced me to a, a rough you know the rough life the street life the more crime the life of crime but they introduced you to that was when you could because at the time you were, as you said you were working in lawn service yeah. i believe you started a dj business yes i did but that was all hard work, not as much money, not as fast. They introduced you to fast money. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that one of their parents initiated or recruited you guys to rob another house that yes. had drugs in it. Talk about that. So um, I was approached one evening by, you know, one of the brothers and who expressed to me that one of the parents, um, the, the, the father, um, the stepfather, it wasn't his real dad, you know, wanted you know, a couple guys to go break into this house where there was some supposed to be some some drugs, some cocaine um, and that they they would reward us. So upon doing um, doing the other robbery, we went in, uh, we didn't find all the cocaine that we thought we would find, but we found the safe. We found maybe eight ounces of coke, but they're on the we also found some weapons. We found a shotgun and a 380 with a pearl handle and and all the and, you know and other little miscellaneous jury. So we gathered the 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 property that we were stealing, and I stayed with the guns. So upon leaving that night, you know, we were going to divvy up the property, and I was going to get paid. You know, I decided to remain with the weapons, the guns, the guns. You were drawn to the weapons. I was drawn to the weapons. Which is well, very, was there? Can let me ask you: Was there was there a certain level of excitement then to all this that you had never really experienced before um yes yes extremely because i've never broken into anybody's house and i just really that wasn't my thing that wasn't a a, a lifestyle of mine I, you know because i we've had our house broken into and i just kind of despised that 
uh, the excitement, the adrenaline rush was that we were in somebody's house and my goodness, you know, it was just wild. Um, 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 and the idea of having the guns, as I share with you, you know, the, the thrill of having the guns was also part of a cultural element of, of that time. Cause I was into, that was the time where gangster rap was really getting mm -hmm. on the main front and the mm -hmm. national stage with groups like NWA and ghetto boys. And this was like the cultural music and being social misfits and rebels. And, and, and so having a gun or, or, or being that kind of a uh, uh, daredevil type person was, was looked upon as something special, like a badge of honor. And getting rid of those guns on the street was not hard to do. No, actually. Um, at that time, it was quite easy. Um, there were many gangs, yeah, as uh, I'm sure there are now, but back then the, the prevalent gangs was the IMPs, the Latin Disciples, Latin Kings, and uh, 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 La Familia in, in that area. So er, all those gang members wanted weapons for one reason or another. Now, now Jose, what's interesting is that you, you broke in there to get, because you, you had heard there was cocaine there, but there really wasn't that much. You found a cache of guns. Yeah. It was interesting is that you told me you really had no interest in being a drug dealer back then. Mm -hmm. You were drawn to the guns, which is interesting because a few years later, the guns led to your demise. Yeah. Now, why was it that you didn't want to deal in drugs? That was very easy money. Very easy money, but it takes a certain type of person and a type of character to really be a front street dope dealer. And I was never one that wanted to be out in the open. I never wanted to be uh, 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 exposed to the possibility of being arrested that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried it once and then I had my friend do it and I just didn't like um, the element the crackheads and the, 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 the needy and the, and the craving. And, you know, I just didn't want that scene. I wanted to be able to do something to make me fast money and then move on and get out of the way onto the next project. And you know what, you know, what's interesting is that this is 1986, 1987 uh -huh. gangster rap is in mm. and you actually shied away from being a drug dealer. You became an arms dealer mm. at age 14 or 15. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that. Yeah, you know, um, the situation arose while, you know, doing these um, um, block parties or house parties, because I was DJing at the time. I had a started a DJ uh, a business called Cold Crush DJs. It was me, a friend of mine named George Davis, uh, Herbert. Um, and so we started this business. And in the process of doing this, we would meet guys at some of these parties in Parine, in South Miami and in Ghouls. Um, um, and we would meet guys who were looking for weapons, but we also uh, carried weapons to these parties because in a lot of these bad neighborhoods, there would be a lot of shootings or attempted arm jackings and stuff like that. So we <clears throat> needed to be equipped to defend ourselves in the event somebody would try to rob us. Now, you, you needed to find a supply of guns now. Yes. All right. And what's interesting is that you actually found a crooked Hialeah police officer who provided you with guns. At one point, he even sold you a Tech Nine automatic weapon yeah. with a with a silencer. Yes, this was um, a situation that was brought about through my friend John, and and we were able to purchase actually a Tech Nine that was confiscated off the streets. And the officer, I suppose, you know, wanting to uh, make a little side money, you know, sold it to us um, in How the much? street fashion. It was two thousand dollars. But when you buy a silencer, isn't a silencer for the purpose of killing somebody? Oh, yes. Um, 
And the silencer alone is a 15-year federal offense. Wow. Back then, I don't know what it is now, but that was the. And time. you bought it for the purpose of selling it. For selling it for resale. And and at this point in time, and at your age, mm -hmm. you weren't thinking about any of the repercussions, right? No, no, no. I, you know, I, I tell guys, you know, in different arenas that at that time, as a 16 year old, you're only living in the moment, the thrill of the moment, and you're you're looking for the attention and the glamour, the hype. You know, it makes you it gives you a sense of worth and significance. Like if you know you're really special, but don't really realize at that moment that the repercussions of your actions can cost you your life. I mean, a child at that age doesn't have the foresight to see that these actions could actually cause him literally their life, either the rest of their life in prison or death on the streets. Yeah. So while while you're now an arms dealer at the age of 14, 15 mm -hmm. years old, you're going to school, mm -hmm. you're you're working at a lawn service, you're working as a DJ and you're an arms dealer. How much money are you making every week selling guns? Uh, roughly um, um, uh, on average, $200 a week, I would say. That's pretty good money. 200, yeah. Some days, some weeks would be 600, you know, but on average, I'll say six, uh, 200. All right, now big yeah. turning point in your life, big yes. turning point. You break up with your girlfriend. Yeah. And you meet a beautiful young lady named Nanushka. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us about Nanushka and what happened. Well, you know, uh, uh, Nanushka uh, was a beautiful young lady mm -hmm. um, that I met. Um, and I'm not even, I don't even quite remember how we met, but I do remember that when we met, there was, you know, uh, chemistry there, the sparks flying. And so we became, you know, intimate, you know, getting to know each other. And through her is where I ended up eventually meeting my co-defendants, uh, which is her brother. Right. But before that, uh -huh. the big red flag goes up. Uh -huh. You go to Nanushka's house. Yeah. And her brother's there with some friends, the mm. mother. Mm. Everybody's smoking crack. Yeah. What I didn't realize, and it wasn't the initial visitation, it was on subsequent visitations when I came over to the house. I found that the mother was acting erratic. Her hair was all frizzy. And I found, you know, the little cellophane wrappers mm -hmm. with the crack, you know, and I found them, found them smoking. And I, then I saw the brother, her brother, and his friends coming out of the room as well. So I just led me to assume that they were crackheads as well. Um, but I knew the mother was out there. Yeah. So, let, so let's talk about as things go from bad to worst, mm. worse. You're working as a DJ one night at a party. Yes, sir. And you see Nanushka's brother, Steve, there, correct? Yes. And he's got these friends, Chadrick and Cornell. Mm. They're there, and they'd offer to drive you home, correct? Uh, somewhat. It was after I left the party. Uh, okay. And, and I came to their house to see Nanushka's where I met Steve and his friends because they were at the house. And so, because you're an arms dealer, yeah. you always had your case with weapons in it. Yeah. And they give you a ride home. What happens? So that night I had a little briefcase that I always used to carry. And within the briefcase, I had a Smith & Wesson 45 millimeter. I had a 380, a silver 380 with a pearl handle. And I believe I had the Tech 9 in there, but without the silencer. And uh, I carried it with me to the party because there were some people I was going to do some business with there. And we didn't make a transaction, so I was going home. <laughs> I was dropped off at Nanushka house by my request because I wanted to see the young lady. And mm -hmm. obviously, my ambitions were to have an intimate night with her. Um, 
upon getting there and seeing uh, all her brother and friends there, I knew that wasn't going down. So they offered, you know, to take me home. So um, upon getting in the car with Steve, Chad and Cornell, we began to drive home. And on the way home is where uh, the incident transpired that changed my life forever. Um, on the way home, I stayed on 180th Southwest, right in front of South Miami Heights Elementary School. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed right, right in front of it. And on the way there, um, we passed a gentleman who was on a bicycle um, who had a chain, a gold chain, and I think a bracelet on his neck. Uh, around it, it, it's his, nighttime. It's, it's very night. dark. Very, yes, sir. Okay. It's dark. Matter of fact, <laughs> I'm in the passenger side rear seat. Um, um, I believe Chad is driving and Steve is in the passenger and Cornell is next to me, uh, uh, in, in, in the back seat. And so I didn't see the gentleman when we passed, they saw him and, and the first thing I believe Cornell and Chad said, man, look, he's got, he's got some jewelry, man. Let's, um, let's get that jewelry, man. So I looked at him and I was like, man, uh, you know, I've never strong armed nobody. That wasn't my thing. I wasn't into taking from taken from right. the weak or abusing people like that wasn't my, my so, my so he's obviously wearing a lot of gold chains wearing a gold 1986 chain, yeah. 1987 yeah. everybody's wearing gold and, yeah. and so this guy says let's let's it's get the gold and you had the you had guns on and you. i had guns, guns on them in a case at this point and in, yeah, in the briefcase and they knew i had the guns because i had showed them before right. they knew what i was they knew my business so um um cornell uh asked man can we borrow one of your guns and and i told him no no because i you know, growing up, you know, in the hood, you never, you know, we, we had our little code of ethics. You never had nobody a loaded gun, you know, that you don't know. Nonetheless, he turned it on you and shoot you. So I told right. him, nah, I ain't doing that. So he said, well, man, we, we you know, we want to jack this guy. So I, I, I offered because of Steve was in the car. And this is where kind of peer pressure is because mm -hmm. I wanted to be all right with Nanushka's brother, mm -hmm. Steve, who was in the car. I didn't want to come off as punking him or not, you know, not trying to help him come up because I wanted access to his system. Correct. So I volunteered my services. I said, Steve, I'll tell you what I'll do. What I will do, I'll get out the car and I'll jack the man. I put him on the floor, but I'm not touching him. I don't want nothing of it. You guys get what you're gonna get and then let's get out of here. That's the best I do for you, but I'm not letting nobody hold my gun. He said, all right, all right, all right let's do that. So we did a U-turn, came back around. And when we saw, we got up to the, where the gentleman was, we passed him, say about maybe, 20 yards i jumped out of the car and i walked over towards the gentleman and i told him hey man this is a jack don't make it a homicide just lay on the ground and um he laid on the ground he complied and he laid down prostrate face first on the ground and so i had the gun over him waiting for a uh, chad or somebody to get out the car because the agreement again uh, i don't know if i mentioned it but the agreement was you guys get the stuff. I'm not touching it. Right. Yeah. You were just holding the guy holding by gun and they were going to take what they wanted. You didn't want any part of that. And, no and, and they, they wouldn't get out of the car. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't get out the car. So what seemed like an eternity, I say 15, 20 seconds, um, nobody's moving. So I look back at the car trying to see if somebody's coming. When I look back, the gentleman that's on the ground, he's like doing a push up, raising up to turn around. So I take a step back because I don't know if he's going to try to reach up and grab the gun, right? So I tell him, I say, hey, man, chill. This thing's going to be over in a minute. Chill, bro. So when I turn back the second time, I cry. I say, man, what's up, man? Come on. Um, finally, somebody gets out the car, and it's Cornell, and he walks over towards me. 
but he's walking so nonchalantly that I get upset and frustrated because I'm anxious. The gun is shaking in my hand because I've never jacked anybody in my life. And wait one second. Yeah. You're younger than these other three guys. I'm 16 and they're 18 and older. They're right. 18, 19, and 20. And the robbery was their idea. So you're yeah. the young guy. Okay. And you're in the okay. and you're in the middle of a street right. where the cars could possibly pass by. You don't want to right. stand there. Or a police no. officer. Exactly. So the gentleman is laying in the grass near a street lamp off to the side. It's still kind of dark. You don't know where he is. Like there's a shadow cast on him. And we're in front of somebody's yard. So I don't want to be there too long. And, you know, this car is just parked there. That, you know, yeah. luckily there's no cars coming by, but the car is just in the middle of the road, you know, with the brake light on. So um, he finally comes over. He's taking his time. So I get angry and I say, F this, excuse me, French. You know, right. F this, man, I'm out of here. And then he comes over me and says, No, man, wait a minute. So as he reaches over me, like to prevent me from leaving, you know, I testify that the gun hits my hand and it goes off. The gun goes off. The gun goes off as he's trying to prevent me from, you know, aborting the robbery. The gun goes off. I don't know where it hits. I just know it went off. It was facing down towards the back of the enemy, uh, 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 of the gentleman. Did you suspect he got hit? I suspected that he may have got hit because when the after the shot, I glanced at a second. He didn't move. Nothing happened. I figured, well, maybe he's just playing dead or he's just being quiet because I didn't see no blood. I didn't see anything. So I just ran back to the car and we left. Um, later, you know, found out obviously that he had died. How much later? Um, approximately two to three days later, I found out that he had died because Steve and his friends came and told me the guy died. And how did they know? It was in the paper? No. I come to find out that they told me because detectives had came to them and were inquiring about their homicide. That's right. That's right. Okay. So three, four days later, her Nanushka's brother, Steve says, Hey, we got to talk. And he tells you, Hey, somebody you think saw the car, the police are asking mm -hmm. questions. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was pitch black. We were the only ones there. Yeah. Nobody saw anything. What's going on here? Exactly. So, you know, later on, um, they came by and, you know, again, um, they wanted to talk to me and express to me, hey, man, detectives came and they talked to us. They're looking for information about the homicide. And, you know, you might, you know, you might, it might be wise for you to leave town for a little while. And immediately all kind of red flags started going up in my head. Like, how? I mean, w wait a minute. Who talked to you? How they talk to you? Nobody saw it. You know what I'm saying? Well, he, they said they saw a car. Okay, they saw the car, but how they know to come to you? Right, right. You know, right. then automatically, I just smelt like something ain't right here. This, this, this is all wrong. And uh, later on, I find out, you know, I go into trial that, you know, they were informants. Real, real quick question. Yeah, yeah, sure. Had you had you ever had you ever shot a gun before that? I had shot a gun, but never had nobody. You okay. know what I'm saying? I shot, you know, just playing around in the park or. Uh, uh, near Crystal Lake. I don't know if they still have that down here, down south, but it used to be a place called Crystal Lake where they used to do um, 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 paint gun fighting. So you go back there and shoot and just mess around. Now, your mother, you come home one day. Yeah. This is November of 1989. Yes. You come home and your mom says, hey, Jose, are you okay? And you said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? She said, well, the police were here looking for you. Um, so first of all, how did the police find you? Okay, so interesting how they find me, which also puts all these pieces together. The police end up finding me through a high school yearbook. So 
Detective Nyberg and, and, and his colleague, when I was later interrogated, you know, told me that um, Steve and these guys told them that a guy named Ace did the homicide. So I have a tattoo on my arm named Ace. It was my street name and my DJ name. And so the only they, the only name that they had to go on was this Ace name, this alias. Uh, Nanushka, no, none of her brothers or family knew my real name, but they knew how I looked. So they was trying to find a photo of me to identify who I was. So come to find out that um, the detective went to um, Southridge because they knew I went to school there and they went looking through the yearbooks to see if they can point me out. And so happened my freshman year, I took a, a high school picture. It was the only year that I took a high school picture. Right. And they, they pinned me there. That's how they were able to find my name. And then obviously in finding my name, the school uh, was able to give them my address and therefore find where I was living at. So the police show up at your, at your mom's apartment, your apartment with your yes. mom. Yeah. And and th they find you. They come and you're there, correct? Yes. And they, they want to ask you a few questions. Yes. But this is interesting because it's more than just asking you a few questions. That yes. you, all of a sudden, they drive you 25 yeah. miles downtown and arrest you, correct? Correct. So as I come into the apartment, my mother, you know, she asked me, and my nickname is Nenez. She said, Nenez, in Spanish, this is a Spanish dialogue, so I'm translating for you. Uh, what's going on? You okay? Uh, there was some police officers around here looking for you. I'm like, what, for what, mom? What's up? And so as I'm having a dialogue with her, there's a knock on the door. So she goes to the door and open. It's Detective Nyberg and uh, the other detective that was with him. Um, they come in. So they tell my mother, hey, could we talk to your son? We would like to just, you know, drive around the neighborhood right quick, ask him a few questions and we'll bring him right back, which obviously was a blatant lie. Um, because as soon as I got into the car, we did not drive anywhere near our neighborhood. We immediately got on the expressway and went downtown. That um, 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 deception was to separate my mother from me so that I would not have any sort of representation and to get me alone as uh, an ignorant juvenile, nonetheless guilty. You were 16 years old. 16 and to get me to try to incriminate myself. So. Um, they took me directly downtown and then put me in a room and then showed me a stack of transcripts and, you know, the whole bad cop, good cop. Hey, you want a cigarette? Don't spill and, you know, make you wait it out and then tell you uh, you will talk to your mom later after you answer some questions. Blah, blah, blah. Did you admit your guilt to them in interrogation? In the interrogation, I end up admitting my guilt to try to uh, 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 nullify um, the charges against me, you know, he said that they may look at it first to be murder, maybe death penalty. You know, you got to give us some information what happened because Chad and Steve are saying that, you know, you're the man, blah, blah, blah. And so in my ignorance, I didn't realize that I, the best thing for me to do was to shut up, shut your mouth. And thinking I'm going to help myself, I began to tell my side of the version. Hey, man, wasn't my wasn't my idea. I didn't want to rob nobody. I just wanted to go home. If anything I did wrong, man, I had some guns. Okay, if you want to bust me for that, okay, I'm, that is, but this this ain't me. I tried to abort this. I ain't. I'm not into robbing nobody. But did any of that come that out during the trial? That that your your story, my, they, they didn't let you testify. No, my my state appointed attorney advised me not to testify, and uh, I think that was the worst move I could have made. But 
mind you, as a, as a juvenile, you, you, you're hoping and you're wishing that these attorneys have your best interests in mind. And so you, so you feel like your state appointed attorney didn't necessarily give you the best representation you might've no. had if you had maybe more wealth, more, the better I, attorney. Oh yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Cause I think, I think the, you know, we was trying to push, you know, the abandonment because I mm -hmm. attempted to abort this. So this shooting was an accident. It wasn't an intent, you know, an intention right. just to, to do somebody harm. So I think with the proper representation, it could have been different. But now let me add a caveat to all of that. And let me say this. I do not in no way, shape, form or fashion regret the time I've done. I deserve what I got. Right. Somebody life was taken and I accept full responsibility, whether it was by ignorance or by choice, you know, I do not in no way, shape, form, or fashion justify it or try to nullify it. You know, I've done the time and 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 I accept the responsibility for it. Even if other people should have been there with me, I'm cool and I'm okay with me doing the life sentence and them guys going All home. Right. When, well, now that you've said that, let me jump ahead before we come back because, yeah. <clears throat> you know, here you are, you, you know, you commit this terrible, terrible crime. You got involved mm -hmm. at a young age. Somebody lost their life. An sure. innocent man lost his life. Yes. You've been paroled after 28, almost 29 years. So what do you say to the people who say, why should you even get out of prison? You killed a man. He'll never be free. Why should you get out? How do you, how do you answer people who, who believe that? Number one, my first response is I've done the required time that the state of Florida and the legislature required for me to do. Mm -hmm. So I fulfilled that obligation. Number two, I am more of an asset to the community out here than I am in there. The difference in, in who I am today as opposed to who I was is is like night and day. There is a consistent pattern, even if you look at my prison record, there's a consistent pattern of reform, transformation, and uh, uh, outreach to even my community. While in prison, obviously, um, uh, for those who know, I was a part of Role Models 5000, Toastmasters, and, and, and different ministry opportunities. And so I was able to help men from the inside. So it comes a point in time where people need a second chance. And mind you, when I say a second chance, not a handout, but an opportunity to show myself worthy. And that's all I was looking for throughout those years, an opportunity to show myself worthy and deserving of, of, of a second chance to make a difference, to show that I'm not who I was as a juvenile. Let me ask you this question. Let's jump now. Let's jump back to 1990. You're 17 years old. Mm -hmm. You're sent and you were tried as an adult at the yes. age of 16 and you're sent to an adult prison. Explain to people watching and listening why a 16 or 17 year old you know, <laughs> adolescent who commits, uh, who's, who's, who's convicted of first degree murder is charged as an adult and sent to an adult prison. Um, as a 16 year old, um, First going to the county jail, allow me to say that um, the county jail for juveniles, Day County Jail is a very violent place. It's a place where we fought a lot and we fought over territorial gripes, who was from down south and who's from city. Um, right. Mind you, while you're there, you're told all the horror stories of prison, 
um, you know, that they're going to try to rape you. They're going to try to manipulate you, steal your stuff. You got to protect yourself. You got to get ready to fight or become somebody's lover. You know, if I can use a, a, a good term there and not use some type of profanity. Right. Uh, so going to prison as a juvenile, you have, as I shared with you the other day, you have two options, either fight or flight. Either you're going to man up and if you're going to have to hurt somebody, hurt somebody so that a precedent is set that this kid you're not going to mess with. Or if you're going to mess with him, it's going to make cost you your life. Or you're going to fly, flight, run, go check in. Check in is a term where you go to the, the officer station and you ask to be placed in protective management because you can't deal right. with uh, uh, the, the inmate population out of fear right. of being raped, manipulated, or abused. But but the question I was asking mm -hmm. is, why is a 16 or 17-year-old sent to an adult prison? And oh, it, it, no, isn't that because mm -hmm. a, when you're charged with first-degree yeah. murder, that's an by law, that's an adult sure. crime. And once they find you guilty, they don't care if you're 15 years old. Exactly. You're an adult in the state's eyes. So, so correct. Correct. Okay. State law um, 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 uh, says, especially in, in 1989, um, that when you commit a capital felony, your juvenile status is adjudicated to an adult. So as a juvenile with a first degree murder charge, you do not go to a juvenile institution or some juvenile rehabilitation facility, you're immediately adjudicated and bonded over to an adult facility because of the, the seriousness of your crime. And that, that is a, that's a Florida law statute. Is, is um, you're a 16 year old, 17 year old kid mm -hmm. going to a very violent prison, right? Okay. Do you, are they preying on you? I mean, you walk through that door and they're seeing a kid, I mean, in essence, right? Yes. Were they preying on you at that point? Or how did you avoid being preyed upon? Um, by God's grace, I did go to a maximum security prison, Dade CI. It was my first institution. But it was not the most violent institution in the state of Florida. Rayford, FSP, there were other institutions that were more violent and, uh, uh, and more, uh, um, shall I say, heinous. Um, though at the time upon arriving there, um, as I expressed your disposition as a person, how you carry yourself as you walk off the bus, um, will determine oftentimes the course of how the rest of your stay in prison is going to be. And what I mean by that is if you give the persona or the perception as you're soft, timid, or weak, I use the term in our conversation of the day, uh, Mr. Wolf that the opportunistic buzzards, these vultures that are in the Department of Correction, these predators will come out and prey upon you. They will use manipulative tactics or some will, cause use, will use straight brute force to get what they want out of you. But how did you, how did you know, I mean, you're 16, 17, how did you know that you had to carry yourself that way walking into that prison for the very first time? Um, I got a glimpse of that because of in, uh, while in the county jail, used to have trustees from the other floors, the older guys who had been to prison, and they would, you know, drop lines to us and let us know, Jit, you need to get tight, you need to get right, you need to get ready to fight. And so we we already knew, most of us already knew that when we go to prison, you need to fight. And if you're not, if you're not big enough to fight, you need to go find you a weapon. So that if somebody come upon you, if you have to stab them, you got to do what you got to do to survive or become somebody's girl. 
uh, for better terms. You were told somebody took you aside. I, I want you to talk a, a little bit about this. Somebody took you aside, took mm. you under their wing to help you mm. learn the ropes. And yes. they told you that you had to be prepared because at your age, they were going to try to manipulate you for mm. money, mm -hmm. manipulate you for sex mm. and rape. Right. So how did you avoid all that? And what were the mistakes that others made your age who didn't escape all that? So there was an older gentleman when I moved into the dormitory, he came to me and he seemed like to be a, one of the cool guys, you know, the, the positive guys. And, I, and, and let me preface this, this by saying that everybody in prison is not a bad guy. Mm -hmm. You have some really good dudes in there that, you know, that, 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 that are awesome people. Now you do have garbage and maggots, and that's what I call them because that's how they carry themselves. This one particular gentleman came to me and said, "Jit man, let me let me spit into your ear." That's a term of let me share some wisdom with you. He said, "Man, if you want to do good time, if you want to make it out here alive, I'm gonna tell you three things." He said, "Number one, mind your business. Number two, keep your mouth shut. Number three, stay to yourself because if nobody knows what you're doing." And they think and you stay to yourself and you're not very talkative, then they're going to think either uh, a couple of things about you. either you're crazy or you, you, you're a psychopath or you might do them harm. So don't give them a reason to think anything otherwise. Stay to yourself. Be quiet. Shut your mouth and your time will go by pretty good. That's how you survived 29 years in prison? For the most part, yes. How would you describe daily prison life to the average person watching this show? Wow. Um, daily prison life is is a it's a it's a microcosm of normal society in prison. You have drug dealings. You have you have rapes. You have you have smuggling. You have a shooting. I mean, I mean, not gun shooting, but you have, you know, dope shooting alcohol. I mean, stuff is smuggled in and out. So a lot of stuff you have on the streets. You can get in prison, Percocets, Mollies. You see it in there. Okay. In the same vein, prison is one of the most segregated places on the planet. And what I mean by that, the pedophiles hang with the pedophiles. The thugs and hoodlums, they hang usually with themselves, you know, and the murderers and, and you know, all the guys that have the, 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 the uh, code of ethics, prison code of ethics, good crimes. They're they're there. The educated guys go to school trying to get their GED. And and, and then you have the, the dope guys and the slime balls. You know, they they're they're in their area. And so even when you go into child hall, people segregate and sit to their kind. You know, it's not really based upon race. It's based upon your social or your cultural agenda where you feel like you relate most. And so people gravitate and, and into clicks, into into that even in dormitories they not not much different than society right. yeah so 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 you weren't necessarily in a gang you were just with people that you identified with yes sir um i was i was associated i always associated myself with the guys who wanted to better themselves wanted to get an education wanted to find a way to get a second chance in the law books trying to find a new law a new case to get out of prison and I want to say something, um, if I can, Mr. Wolf. Sure. You mentioned about me being paroled, but I have to remind um, everyone and remind, I wasn't paroled. I went back and got resentenced under the juvenile law. And so the life sentence was taken from me and I was given 
a sentence that EOS me from the courthouse. Well, you, you would have been paroled. I would have been. However, because the sentences were consecutive, you would mm. have then faced two additional 15-year exactly. sentences. But because of the juvenile, because the juvenile law changed, yes. you were resentenced. Yes, sir. So, so okay, so everything changed. But you were actually very fortunate, lucky, yes. blessed, because that legislation changed, and mm. a lot of guys in your situation would have just been resentenced back to life, correct? Yes, yes, Explain yes. that. Okay, so um, the whole vein of that, in February um, 19th of 2018, the parole commission came to me to offer me parole. And what that entailed was me being paroled out of my life sentence into a consecutive 15-year sentence that the court gave me in 89, which was followed by a consecutive six months county time for contempt of court for refusing to testify against my co-defendant. So in essence, what would have happened if I would have accepted parole by the parole commission, I would have been paroled out of the life to start a 15 year sentence. So I would have never left right. Everglades Correctional. I would still be there right now having to do at least eight years on that 15 year bid. And then after those eight years would have been done sometime in the future, I would have to go to the county jail to do six months time. So I rejected parole because there was a motion in court under the new law, juvenile, uh, the new juvenile uh, offender law for resentencing. And uh, April 18th, I went back to court and the judge commuted all those sentences into one, gave me 50 years and released me with one year probation. And after one year probation, the probation was terminated and I'm free completely today. Wow. And two months after my release, subsequently, as we were talking about, the law changed and the door was closed. And so a lot of our, a lot of my brothers, juvenile offenders who are in prison under parole have been unable to go home as I have because the state legislature changed the law. Wow. So two months after release later, right. yeah. if it had been two months later, I you'd still be sitting still there. I'd still be in prison. And you're a productive member of our society right now. I yes, mean, sir. And you know what's fascinating to me, Jose, is when you when you got out of prison, you actually had a fair amount of money yes. that you had saved up. So a couple of questions. Number one, number one, how did you make money in prison? I know mm. you said you had a little loan sharking operation going on. <laughs> yeah. But in yeah. addition to that, I mean, when you got out, you actually had enough money to buy yourself a car. Yes. Talk so about that. Initially, when I first came into the prison, I did continue like a little, little petty crime. So I was doing loan sharking. Um, and that in the department of correction is illegal. You get caught, you go to confinement. Um, but after that phase, as I began to seek, you know, transformation and, and become a new person, I began working within the department of correction in different programs where to, I initially, uh, initially I started in the kitchen working for uh, Inframark and, uh, started making a little money there. And then I went to working in the canteen and the canteen pays a, used to pay a salary of $75 a month. Now they, as of like four or five years ago, they dropped it to $50 a month. But with the money I was making, I began to save. And I learned a skill from a friend of mine while at Avon Park Correctional Institution of investing money into mutual funds and learning stocks and currency trading. So uh, upon learning some of these skills, I began to save money and invest it in a mutual fund, Putnam Investments, where to, upon my release, uh, uh, before my release, I had my mother buy her second home. I gave her the money for the closing. And, um, so I was able wow. to play a part in giving back to my mother who I love so dearly. Um, and before my release, right, or upon my release, uh, uh, April 18th of 2000, 
no, I'm sorry, June 1st, 2018, I left the Department of Corrections with $15,000 cash from, you right. know, from monies that wait, I had saved. Take us through this. So here you're doing a life sentence in prison mm -hmm. and you what? You you write to Putnam Investments and they yeah. send you an application. You fill it out, you mail it in. Uh -huh. And then how do you send money to them? So every month, you know, uh, the, um, the Department of Corrections allow you to do a withdrawal from your inmate account. So if my mother needed some money, I can get a withdrawal form and I can take money out and send it to my mother. And it'll be a check with the Department of Corrections logo on it, but she could, you know, cash it on. So in the same vein, um, I opened an account with Putnam Investments. I would, uh, every month I would withdraw money and send it to the investment firm and they would invest it for me. And I began to make dividends and, uh, and increase. And then besides that. Putnam Investments, then you're putting money, money in foreign currencies? In foreign currencies, the currency trade. While you're in prison. Uh, while I was in prison now. That was a little trickier way I had to, I had to send money to my mother and then I would call her during times when we had phone call and I would tell her, Hey mom, uh, buy, buy, uh, two calls on, on the Euro dollar, you know, and then sell here and buy there. And that's how we would do that. And then when you got out, you had enough money to help your mother and buy a car and buy a car. I bought a Lexus IS 250 upon my release. Um, the state gave me no money. You know, they usually give you $50 upon release. If you, you know, if you're, if you're indigent, but because I had so much money, they, you know, they didn't give me a dime. I didn't want it. Anyway. Now, one of the things you're doing now that you're, you're trying to speak to people and communicate yes. with people and you're trying to teach people that prison is not just a place of punishment. Right. It, it, it really should be viewed as a place where people can help themselves. Talk about that a little bit. Okay. So, um, every time I speak to young guys, um, um, either on the street corner or in church or youth outreach, uh, mm -hmm. I always try to paint a different portrait of prison because the common portrait you get on from Hollywood or from, you know, rap and whatever is always this doom and gloom, dark side of prison. And yes, there is a dark side to prison, but I want I want to uh, use the opportunity right now to also paint another side, another portrait of prison. Prison can be a place of transformation, reformation and new creation. And what I'm saying with that is that. For a lot of guys like myself, prison was not a downfall. Prison was a stepping stone towards success. It was a place where we were able to gather ourselves, make up our minds about what we wanted to do, change the course of our destiny, and apply ourselves to education, higher learning, and to become better men, better leaders, and to go home and make a difference to our families. And so that, that type of portrait or that picture, that course, is contingent upon the individual. When a man gets to a place where he's sick and tired and he's had enough, that's where change begins to happen. So for some men, it, all it takes is one time falling. Obviously, there are some men in prison who've been in prison 11 times. I know men with J letters. J. That means you've been in prison like approximately 11, 10, 11 times in and out of prison. But their bids are normally two years, three year bids, and they do like a year and a half. Or, you know, They never had really nothing taken from them. But the men who have suffered and had half their life taken from them or or had their families and saw so much taken away, they are more apt to seek change and want something different because they realize that that suffering and pain, they don't want it anymore. And they don't want to see it for anyone else in their life. That prison is not nothing to be glamorized, but neither is it a tomb where you to die at. It can be a place uh, of triumph, a place where you can uh, uh, rise up out of the ashes 
like a phoenix and create a new destiny for yourself. So how did you use this concept for you? Mm -hmm. How did Jose Nare use this concept to improve yourself? I use this concept uh, to improve myself by number one, education. Now, let me say my number one inspiration was my mother, right? Mm -hmm. um, is she still, you're, she's still alive? She's still alive. How old is she? She is now 72 years old. Okay. And so um, my mother saw me walk out the door as a 16 year old boy. And she hadn't seen me since. And every time she would come to prison, to the jail, she would drive you know, up to Orlando area to come see me, spend hours on the road, her hard earned dollars, and she would cry, you know what I'm saying? Uh, because she would cry for her baby. I'm her youngest son. And I bowed to her. I said, mom, please stay alive till I get home. And I'm gonna take care of you, I promise. I'm gonna be there for you because you've been there for me. And and there's nobody on this planet who has done more for me than her. Is that has that been the worst, maybe, maybe the worst part of all this was the suffering you caused your mother? That is the worst part of it. Being in a courtroom as I'm getting sentenced and watch, watching her eyes flood with tears as she sees her baby for the last time, you know, that she can touch him or hold him. Right. And, 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 and that was a motivating factor for me for change because, you know, the last thing as we were going out, she said, baby, just make it home for me. And I said, I promise mom, you know? So um, um, that was one of the reasons for change. The right. second, you know, obviously you should change for, for yourself because you want better for yourself. But she was the kicker, I'm gonna be honest with her, with you, you know, she pushed me to that place my love for her and her love for me was what drove me to change. And in the process of that, I grabbed hold all, I grabbed hold to it with a bulldog tenacity and uh, I ran for it, you know. And I did. We've got about a minute and okay. a half to go. So yes. I think in, in closing, I think you're now, you have become the asset of the community that yeah. you've talked about. You yeah. work at a water treatment center in Hialeah. Yes. You're still helping the men at the Corrections Transition Program. Yes, yes sir. You're involved with 5,000 role models where, yes. you, where the kids come out to the prison and you speak to them. Yeah. And you're also doing very admirable ministry work and Bible studies, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, congratulations on your transition. You are, you're, you're an impressive guy and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and uh, I welcome you back to this show whenever you want. Um, you know, I, I just want to say that I'm so honored, uh, you know, at the opportunity you've provided for me just to share my story. Um, I'm grateful and, you know, any, in any way that I can be a blessing, uh, not only to men going home to this program, to right. anything, that's where I want to be. You know, that's okay. what, that's what we're about. Well, thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you. Yeah. Andy, final words. And that makes a difference, my friend, Jose <laughs> Nuray. I mean, that really does make a difference in people's lives. The mm -hmm. things you've said, you've been so eloquent here today. And, uh, you know, you're a productive member of society now, man, God bless you. Really, thank really. You. Thank you so much. Well, it's, it, it, thank you all so much for tuning in to a, another episode of men going home. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.